The Jogcast, post-Christmas intellectual stimulation, with George Bendo, John Field, Stuart Harper, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison and Mark Perver. The Jogcast, January 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jogcast. Happy New Year, if you're listening to this in January. We sometimes have a quite a large cast of presenters, but today it's just me and George. Hello. In the show this time, Indy interviews Dr. Victor De Batista about the evolution of spiral galaxies. Ian Morrison and John Field take a look at what's happening in the January night sky, and we bring you a couple of astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. This month in the news, black holes in black hole clothing. Black holes are one of nature's most unusual objects, a small region of the universe in which vast quantities of mass has accumulated, and the combined gravitational field of all this mass then acts to wrap space into a closed system from which nothing can escape. The formation of black holes occurs almost exclusively at the end of a massive star's life, the sole survivor at the epicentre of the parent star's supernova explosion. For physicists and astronomers, Black holes represent the potential for testing our understanding of the universe, as very few other places have more extreme environments than that which is found on the horizon between our universe and the unobservable inner world of a black hole. The problem with black holes is that finding them is difficult. Since nothing can escape the black hole, they appear to be invisible to any of our current methods used to observe astronomical objects, which rely on the emission of some form of light. So instead of looking for black holes directly, we search for the effects they have on the environment around them. For example, if the black hole has a nearby companion star, it is possible for the gas and the dust in the star's outer layers to be torn off by the gravitational pull of the black hole. This forms a steady flow of material falling towards the black hole, and eventually forms a swirling disk of material, like the water going down a black hole. But unlike the water, the gas gets hotter and brighter as it swirls ever closer to the black hole's horizon. Eventually, the infalling stripped gas is heated so much that it glows with X-ray light. It is the emissions from these disks that astronomers search for when looking for black holes and are known as ultraluminous X-ray sources. There are many types of ultraluminous X-ray sources, and the type depends upon the size of the black hole and the type of star being fed upon. Typically, though, you can split them into two broad categories. Either the ultraluminous X-ray source is emitting high-energy X-rays, which are characteristic of stellar-mass black holes, the sort of black hole that is left over from a supernova and is typically about the mass of the Sun, or, alternatively, an ultraluminous X-ray source which emits low-energy X-rays is thought to be an indicator of the presence of an intermediate-mass black hole. An intermediate-mass black hole is about 1,000 times more massive than our Sun, and is expected to be the rarest type of black hole. The rarity of intermediate-mass black holes stems from the unlikely set of events that are required to form them such as the collision of supermassive stars in a dense globular cluster, or even the merger of two stellar-mass black holes. Both types of black hole are important to study, as both are the products of extreme natural processes, and can inform us about the endpoint of the evolution of stars. In fact, 
intermediate mass black holes, if discovered, are even more interesting exactly because of their expected rarity and unusual methods for formation. There are, of course, a number of ultraluminous X-ray sources that we know of, and some of those are potential good candidates for containing stellar mass black holes. An example of an ultraluminous X-ray source with a stellar mass black hole is IC10X1, which is in the local galaxy IC10, within the constellation Cassiopeia. However, examples of intermediate mass black hole ultraluminous X-ray sources are much fewer. One such potential candidate was found in 2004 by the Chandra and XMM Newton X-ray observatories and is called M101ULX1, where again, M101 refers to the galaxy name and ULX1 refers to the fact that it is the first ultraluminous X-ray source found within that galaxy. Since then, follow-up observations have worked to confirm that M101 ULX1 is an ultraluminous X-ray source containing an intermediate mass black hole. One of the teams of astronomers who have been making the follow-up observations of M101 ULX1 have recently published their findings in Nature. Their plan was to deduce the mass of the black hole and its companion star by measuring the speed at which the two stars orbit each other. The orbital speeds can be estimated using the Doppler effect on the light coming from the star and from the hot disk of gas around the black hole. Unfortunately though, the result indicated that the black hole in M101 ULX1 is only a few tens of solar masses in size, meaning it qualifies only as a stellar mass black hole. This is problematic, as the X-ray observations appeared to show all the characteristics of an intermediate mass black hole. So, what exactly could make a stellar mass black hole appear to be an intermediate mass black hole? There is an explanation, and it all stems from the unusual properties of the companion star and the separation distance of the two companions in M101 ULX1. Most stars throughout their life cycles are fairly stable, meaning the gravity pulling the star inwards is closely balanced with the outward push of the fusion processes in the star's core. If this wasn't the case, Either the star would collapse under its own weight, or the star would simply explode. However, some very large stars do not have this balance. They are brighter than they should be, and because of this, spew vast quantities of gas out into space in events like our own sun's solar flares, only thousands of times larger. These stars are known as Wolf-Rayet stars. The companion star in M101 ULX1 is one of these Wolf-Rayet stars. But why would this make M101 ULX1 appear to be an intermediate mass black hole? It is all related to how the black hole is feeding off the star's gas. As a comparison, look at the ultraluminous X-ray source IC10X1 mentioned earlier. It too has a Wolf-Rayet star companion, but the orbital time is just one day, meaning that they are very close together, close enough for the black hole to strip the gas straight off the star, forming a smooth, continuous stream of gas to feed the black hole. In M101 ULX1, the two companions are far apart. They take eight days to complete an orbit. The black hole is therefore restricted to feeding off the gas found in the giant solar flares from its Wolf-Rayet companion. This unstable method of feeding the black hole appears to make it so the gas in the disk around the M101 ULX1 black hole not heat up nearly as much as the disk in IC10X1 or other stellar mass black hole ultraluminous X-ray sources and therefore not emit 
as energetic streams of X-rays. Theorists had predicted that perhaps ultraluminous X-ray sources like M101, ULX1, may be possible, but now these ideas can be confirmed. This will help future observers who are still searching for intermediate mass black holes and can use this result to confirm their observations. It is also another step along the road to understanding the interesting physics of black holes. Thanks for that, Stuart. And now for the interview, Indy spoke to Dr. Victor De Batista about stellar migration and spiral galaxies. Today I'm with Dr. Victor De Batista from the University of Central Lancashire. Hello, Dr. De Batista. Hello, thank you for your invitation. So your speciality lies in disk galaxies. Could you explain to us what differentiates a disk galaxy from the other kinds of galaxies and what its sort of main characteristics are? So the main characteristic of a disk galaxy is that there are stars that are going around in roughly circular orbits around the center, and that produces a disk. The other main type of galaxy would be one where the motions of the stars are largely random, so those would be more like elliptical galaxies. So in the very crudest level... The Hubble tuning fork that Hubble invented more than 50 years ago now, more than 60 years ago now, has ellipticals on one side and has disk galaxies on the other side. And that is really determined by whether you're dominated by rotation or whether you're dominated by random motions of stars. What's more common, elliptical galaxies or disk galaxies? The disk galaxies are much more common for the larger galaxies. For the smaller galaxies, we do tend to, so for the dwarfish galaxies, we do tend to see a significant number of dwarfs. And by number, dwarf galaxies are, in fact, dominating in the universe. And those tend to be a mixed type. Sometimes they're, they're rotating, sometimes they're not rotating quite as much. But if we're talking about galaxies of the sort of mass of the Milky Way, Typically, what you expect is that the majority uh, will be disk galaxies. Okay, and so just to clarify, our Milky Way is a disk galaxy. Our Milky Way is a disk galaxy, and moreover, it's a type of galaxy that has what's known as a bar at the center, that's a central elongation of stars. Barred galaxies turn out to be the most common type of galaxies amongst disks, amongst the large disks. So the Milky Way is fairly standard, run-of-the-mill galaxy in some way. Okay, and so what do you yourself work in the field of disk galaxies? So my primary interest is in the evolution, the dynamics, uh, the formation of disk galaxies, how mass is assembled, what we can learn about how galaxies are constructed, about things like the components that we cannot see, so black holes and the dark matter halos. One of the things that I'm very interested in also is how the disks come about, what are the stellar populations in the disks, etc. So could you maybe take us through the basic theories that we have today about how disk galaxies form? Sure. So when I say that I study mostly disk galaxies, I study disk galaxies from a theorist perspective using big supercomputer simulations. So what we think is happening is that there is this uh, dark matter in the universe. We don't really understand that. We think it's some sort of particle physics phenomenon. It's some particle that is left over from after the Big Bang, and those dark matter halos basically come together under the action of gravity, and then they attract gas inside. Gas can cool inside those dark matter halos, and as it cools, it loses energy, but it conserves some of its angular momentum, and then it settles into a disk. And as the density of the gas gets higher and higher, some of that gas is transformed into stars, and those stars then go through processes which are known as feedback, things like stellar winds and supernovae. And as they explode, and or as they blow off stellar winds, some of the gas gets blown up with that. In fact, it turns out that star formation is a relatively inefficient process, and only a relatively small percentage of the gas ever makes it into stars. Right. So what sort of timescales are we talking about? How long would it take for a sort of disk to coalesce uh, and... Uh... 
visible structure. So we start seeing these galaxies fairly early on in the universe. It's a surprising result that when we go off to redshifts of six or so, we're already seeing these galaxies or things that look like these galaxies in place. And so those are timescales of order a billion years or so. That's the sort of timescale we need to be thinking about. Of course, the types of disks that were present then, the universe was much denser then, so they were those disks were interacting a lot more. There was a lot more gas and a lot less stars, so they tend to be more gas-rich. There's a lot more processes going on. But they, in principle, form fairly fast. And it's part of the challenge of understanding galaxy formation, how galaxies formed at those early times. So you've just given a talk here at JBCA, and one of the main points of this was that you've been working on this phenomenon known as stellar migration. So could you explain what that is exactly and why it's interesting? Sure. So I said earlier that stars are mostly on circular orbits. So you might expect that for a star to go from one location to another location, so from one radius to another radius, rather than just one location to another location, for a star to do that, it needs to get more and more eccentric orbits, which we know that stars don't have very, very eccentric orbits because we can actually measure how fast stars are moving in the radial direction as opposed to how fast they're going around. And so that was thought to not be possible up to about a decade ago. It's since turned out that there is a mechanism for driving stars from one radius to another radius without actually increasing this random motion. And that's the process of what's known as stellar migration. And what's happening there is that stars are interacting with spirals, and those spirals drive stars from one radius to another. They can drive them outwards or they can drive them inwards. And that's one of the things that we've been studying. I think at this point it's worth reminding our listeners the spiral shapes that you see in a galaxy that that they don't represent exactly the way the stars move. The spiral is in fact the sort of what's known as a density wave. That's right. Um, so maybe you could sort of sure. What so basically what we think is happening with spiral arms is that it's not like when you pour cream in your coffee and you see it mix around and it becomes like a spiral, that would be what's known as a material wave. There's this material that's getting strongly mixed around. What we think is happening with the spiral arms of this galaxy is, is basically that there's a density enhancement locally, and that density enhancement, because the disk is rotating, gets sheared out into the spiral structure. A little bit of an idea of what that might be like is if you have a traffic jam, for example, there's a location where stars slow down and then the density increases Sorry, not stars, the cars slow down. <laughs> <laughs> the cars would slow down, so there's a, an enhancement in the density of stars, and that's a little bit like a density wave that's propagating through traffic. And that's a little bit similar to what the stars are doing in a spiral arm. And so the way that they sort of jump orbits is by getting sort of caught up in this density wave. So that's right. So if the stars are moving at the same speed as the wave, they can gain or lose angular momentum or energy to, to the wave. And that's a little bit like if you think about a surfer on the sea, to catch the wave, he needs to be moving at the same speed as the wave. Once he's moving at the same speed as the wave, he can actually gain lots of energy from the wave without increasing tremendously his vertical energy, his energy up and down, bouncing up and down. And that's a little bit like what the stars are doing. The technical term for it is Landau damping. That's exactly the same thing that stars are doing in these spiral density waves. You mentioned that most of your work is done with simulations and supercomputers, but to what extent is it informed by observations and surveys and things like that? And what, what sort of uh, observations do you work with mainly? Right. So, of course, whenever you run a simulation, the main thing that you have to keep in mind is how well do your results compare with observations? It's very easy to run simulations, but garbage in, garbage out, unfortunately. So you need to always worry about at the end of the day, do your simulations look anything like 
what people are observing. And what people are observing depends on what sort of simulation you're running, but we've been comparing our simulations with things like data from the Hubble Space Telescope. With the Hubble Space Telescope, we can resolve individual stars in nearby galaxies, figure out how old they are and where they're located. And based on that, we can actually compare to our simulations and ask the questions, do they look reasonable? We can also look at, in the case of the Milky Way observations that are coming from a previous satellite known as the Hipparchus satellite, which measured what the random motions of stars in the Milky Way disk are, and we're comparing our simulations with those random motions of stars. And generally, of course, in order for us to publish something, we have to find that there's a reasonably good, at least qualitative, generally also quantitative agreement with the observations, because otherwise we don't want to make statements about real galaxies based on simulations that look nothing like real galaxies. Sure. I mean, to flip that around, you can actually also make predictions. I guess, we do make predictions, and that's, of course, the most exciting part, the most nerve-wracking part, because you make a prediction, and then it's out of your control. Somebody else will go out and check yeah. your prediction, and you never know if it's going to come out right or wrong. So far, we've got a fairly good track record of making predictions that people have confirmed. One of the predictions, for example, that we've made in the context of stellar migration is that beyond a certain radius, you should start seeing stars that on average are getting older and older as you move outwards. And that has now been tested and has been found to be correct. So what you're saying is that no stars form outside a certain radius for a given galaxy, but they just get pushed outwards and, and are found there, essentially. So what we're saying is that beyond a certain point, not, not so much that there's no stars formed out there because that would be a little bit extreme, just simply that the efficiency of star formation is lower out there. So when you look at the amount of stars out there, it's significantly higher than what you would have expected based on the star formation that you see there. And so that means that beside the little bit of stars that have formed there, a significant number of stars have moved out there. They've emigrated from the inner disk where things are more churned, where there's lots more going on, to the mm -hmm. outer disks where things are more quiescent. It's a little bit like suburban flight, I guess, would be, <laughs> would be the model of this. And so what does the future hold for your work? What are the next steps that you're going to be taking in terms of the simulations you'll be doing? So, so the next big thing on the horizon for us is the Gaia satellite. This is the satellite that the European Space Agency is launching at a cost of uh, half a billion, if I remember correctly, euros. Mm -hmm. And what that's going to be doing is looking at, in detail, the positions and velocities of stars throughout the Milky Way. We're going to have a detailed three-dimensional map of the Milky Way. And that's going to give us a fabulous data set to compare our simulations with to make more detailed predictions uh, from our simulations hopefully continue to be correct or if not adjust our simulations as much as we can to see if there is something important that we're missing in our picture of how galaxies form so when you compare those sort of things are you simulating the entire galaxy with you know sort of a certain number of stars or are you just looking focusing on certain areas so for this particular question we look at the entire galaxy within a dark matter halo there's always this issue that we cannot go to the very smallest scales the scales on which the real star formation takes place uh -huh. the way that we run the simulations is that we run them on full scales, so scale up to the dark matter halo, but not including the very smallest scales, which are the scales at which star formation takes place. Those scales are still beyond what our supercomputers are able to give us. It's what we refer to as the subgrid physics and what the mechanisms by which gas cools to very small scales and forms stars. There is still many orders of magnitude away from us being able to 
resolve those processes. Those are about a million times smaller scales than what we can do at the moment. So what we do is we just say when gas gets to about a certain density, for instance, we say form stars, and then that allows us to provide a prescription. It's not a fully accurate representation, but it's faithful enough that we hope that we're capturing some of the end products of the star formation process, and then we follow those through. So for future, of course, as computers become more powerful, we'll be able to add more and more physics, but at this point, we're not doing that sort of thing because no existing computer can actually do a calculation like that. Just out of curiosity, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be wondering, what kind of computing power are you using for these simulations? So some of these can take, let's say, hundreds of thousands of hours on a big supercomputer. Some of these are very expensive. One of the simulations that I ran, ran for over a year. Uh, (laughs) That's the sort of thing we're talking about. Those are very detailed simulations where we have predictions that we want to compare with the Milky Way in detail. You need to plan well in advance mm-hmm. that you want to do this and uh, know that you're going to do this. And the funny thing, of course, about this is that it, it's sometimes a little bit of a game of catch-up that in five years' time, computers will be faster. That The thing that took me a year to run mm-hmm. will probably take me a month to run in five years' time. Yeah, but yeah. That, uh, I can't, can't wait forever, right? So you have to course. do because the Gaia satellite, for instance, is going up now. Yeah, so I yeah, have to have predictions yeah. now. <laughs> One last thing, there's a little thing you mentioned in your talk as well, which was uh, galactic archaeology, which is basically the study of how, well, specifically the Milky Way, I'm guessing, with Gaia will have evolved. You did say that the mixing, the stellar sort of migration, will have a significant effect on how we study the evolution of the Milky Way. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So there's this field that's been dubbed galactic archaeology. In galactic archaeology, the idea behind it is that we're going to peel the layers of the Milky Way. We're going to look at a particular radius in the Milky Way, or sometimes even external galaxies, look at the ages of stars there, and based on that, we'll be able to say, aha, the star formation history, the rate at which stars have been forming in the past at this particular radius, is fully, faithfully represented by the ages of stars that we see now. That is what galactic archaeology is about. What we're saying is that there's a lot of mixing of stars across different radii, and so therefore, if you're a galactic archaeologist, you're no longer dealing with pristine strata, you're dealing with strata that have been jumbled up a lot. And as a professional archaeologist would tell you, that's probably the hardest thing to do because you don't know exactly how to date things, what was going on, when, at different epochs, etc. So this is the headache that radial migration causes to this understanding this galaxy evolution. Great. That's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for that, Indy. And now we come on to the part of the show where we fit in all the things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, George... So one of the biggest pieces of news in astronomy in the past month was the launch of a mission by the European Space Agency named Gaia, which took off, uh, like all other European Space Agency missions from French Guiana, on the 19th of December. Despite the fact that it's named after the Greek Earth goddess, Gaia will be mapping uh, stars in the Milky Way will actually be performing very precise astrometric, photometric, and spectroscopic measurements. Uh, astrometry refers to measuring the positions of the stars, and in the case of Gaia, it will actually be able to measure distances as well using a thing called parallax, where it will be looking at stars when the Earth is in two different locations relative to the Sun, the stars will appear to shift slightly compared to their backgrounds, much like if you hold your thumb in front of uh, your face and close one eye and then the other, you will see the thumb shift relative to things uh, behind your thumb. Uh, photometry refers to 
measuring the brightnesses of the stars, and then uh, the spectroscopy refers to making spectra, which in this case can be used to uh, look at the chemical elements within the stars and also to some degree uh, indicate the temperatures of the stars. So the Gaia satellite will be looking at 1% of the stars within the Milky Way. Now that sounds like a relatively small number, but the Milky Way contains 100 billion stars, so this satellite will actually be looking at 1 billion stars. And it will be operating for five years, and one of the interesting things is that the satellite will actually be in a location called L2. This is one of the five Lagrangian points around the Earth where the gravitational force from the Sun, the gravitational force from the Earth, and centripetal forces all balance out to keep things in a relatively stable location. L2 is a location on the side of the Earth opposite from the Sun. So the satellite will be operating for five years, uh, and it will be uh, quite busy if it's going to achieve a goal of mapping one billion stars within those five years. Yeah, that's pretty fast. And it's it's been done before, but not to this extent, hasn't it? The previous uh, mission that the European Space Agency launched to do this was Hipparchos, which was launched in the late 1980s, uh, continued operating into the early 1990s. That was a groundbreaking mission at the time, uh, just because it was able to measure, in particular, measure positions and distances to stars in a way that was much more accurate than what could have been done previously. Uh, most previous observations were done from the ground, more limited by the Earth's atmosphere. The Gaia mission uh, is certainly doing much more than what the Hipparchos mission did, and it's also uh, doing it with updated detectors. One of the statements that the European Space Agency made is that because the mirrors uh, used in the telescopes for Gaia are much larger than the mirrors used in the Hipparchos mission. They will be 30 times more sensitive than Hipparchos, which allows it to see many more stars than Hipparchos could. Wow. And by mapping the distances as well as the positions, then you'll be able to sort of get a 3D map of the galaxy. You get a 3D map of the galaxy, and also this satellite will be very sensitive to the velocities of the stars. The spectroscopy allows us to measure velocities along our line of sight, and then because it is doing very high-precision mapping of the positions of the stars, you can need, uh, see a thing called proper motion, which is the motions of the stars perpendicular to our line of sight. So it will be able to see stars moving around in the Milky Way, as well as being able to produce a 3D map. Wow. And what's the, that picture going to reveal that hasn't been able to be revealed before? At the very least, it just gives us much more data on many, many more stars. It'll also tell us more about the structure of the Milky Way and be able to tell us about the motions of objects within the Milky Way. One of the particularly interesting things could be uh, looking for stars which are moving in a very different direction than the bulk of the stars in the Milky Way. This could potentially be the signature of dwarf galaxies 
falling into the Milky Way galaxy and being absorbed by the Milky Way galaxy. That's exciting because the the, the structure of galaxies is is a, an important problem in cosmology still. So looking at our own galaxies would be a good place to start. It's always a challenge to look at our own galaxy because we sit inside it. And uh, this satellite is going to just uh, be great at being able to see more of our own galaxy. And maybe L2 Gaia might be able to say hello to the Planck and Herschel spacecraft as well. Another satellite which is uh, planned to uh, be sent to L2 is the James Webb Space Telescope, which may launch in a few years. It's the place to be. Well, my odd and end is about spacewalks. Uh, So up on the International Space Station, astronauts have been for a few spacewalks recently where they don their spacesuits and actually go out of the airlock and into the uh, lack of atmosphere around the space station. So one job was replacing a faulty ammonia coolant pump, which was regulating or helping to regulate the temperature on the space station. Obviously, if you have a fault in something like that in the life support systems, then it's pretty urgent. But also a more fun application, perhaps, was a spacewalk which at the time of recording on the 27th of December is supposed to be happening right now. I must confess I haven't checked whether it is actually going on. And it's to install a camera on the outside of the ISS uh, looking down and taking live pictures of the Earth, which will then be broadcast on the internet. It's called EarthCast, but Earth is spelt U-R-T-H-E. And the chief technology officer, George Tyke said of it, imagine you have a nearly live Google Earth. So they're going to be broadcasting these pictures back almost live. I don't know how zoomed in they're going to be or how much detail, but it's always something that I've wished I could see on the internet was pretty much live pictures from a satellite. And now it looks as though this camera on the ISS is going to be broadcasting such images. One thing that's just worth saying about these spacewalks is, even though we've had astronauts in space for over 50 years now, spacewalks are still a relatively dangerous and exertive experience. Spacesuits are still very bulky and cumbersome, and moving around in space is still relatively difficult. Whenever astronauts have to go out in a spacewalk, it's always a lot of work, even if it seems like something that happens all the time these days. Yeah. If they have any problems, then they have to get get back in right away, as they discovered, I think it was a couple of months ago now, when some water started leaking inside one of the astronauts' helmets. Oh, yes, I remember that. And you don't have much time or many options except to, to get back in as quickly as you can. And now for a view of the sky on an Earthwalk, here's the Northern Hemisphere night sky with Ian Morrison. The night sky for January 2014. Well, of course, we have a lovely evening sky. Over to the west, Pegasus and Andromeda are setting, and I give some instructions on the night sky page as to how to find Andromeda, and also, perhaps if the night is very dark and there's no moon, the other galaxy in that region called M33 in Triangulum. The centrepiece, of course, in the south is Orion the Hunter, with its bright stars Betelgeuse to the upper left, one of the largest stars we know of, and actually imaged recently by E. Merlin at Jodrell Bank. And down to the lower right, of course, 
is Rigel. Below the centre of the three stars lies the Sword of Orion, which includes that beautiful object, the Orion Nebulae. Visible, perhaps as a hazy spot with an unaided eye, but with binoculars or a small telescope, it can look absolutely lovely. The three stars of Orion's belt act as pointers. Down to the lower left, you come to Sirius, the brightest star in our northern hemisphere, Alpha Canis Majoris. Sadly, the lower part of Canis Major we tend not to see from our northern latitudes, certainly up here in Manchester. If you take the three stars up to the right, you come to the constellation of Taurus, the bull, with the two lovely clusters, the Hyades cluster first, and then the little Pleiades cluster. It's one of the most beautiful objects to look at with a pair of binoculars. A bright star, Aldebaran, lies in the direction of the Hyades cluster, but actually only about halfway towards it. It's a red giant. Because our eyes aren't terribly sensitive in the red, we tend to see red giants as an orange colour. Up to the left of Orion, of course, is Gemini, and that's where this month we're going to find Jupiter. High up above Orion, we have Auriga with a bright yellow star, Capella. And over to its right, still high in the sky, we have Perseus and then Cassiopeia. And perhaps you remember that halfway between Perseus and Cassiopeia, along the plain of the Milky Way, lies that lovely region containing the Perseus double cluster. As the evening moves on, Leo is rising over in the east, and below to its left, Mars and then Saturn will be rising in the early hours of the morning. So lots to look at in this lovely sky that we have in January. Well, what about the planets? We'll start with Jupiter. It's visible all night long this month and dominates the southeastern sky in the evening. It reaches opposition on the 5th of January, which means, of course, it'll be due south around midnight. And we'll actually be at a lovely elevation of about 62 degrees above the horizon, shining at magnitude minus 2.7 and having a disk of 47 arc seconds across. It really never gets better than that. It's lying in the constellation Gemini, high in the ecliptic, and it's moving westwards in retrograde motion, due, in fact, to the fact the Earth is sort of going around on the inside track. And it's moving away from the star Wazat, called Delta Geminorum. And, of course, with a small telescope, you can observe the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. And should also be able to pick up the great red spot visible as an indentation in the south equatorial belt. What about Saturn? Saturn is now visible in the pre-dawn sky, rising at about 3am on New Year's Day and at about 1.30am at month's end. Lying in Libra, it is shining with a magnitude of plus 0.6, having a disk with a diameter of about 16 arc seconds. The really good news is that the rings have now opened out to about 20 degrees from the line of sight, so presenting a magnificent view. Sadly, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's now lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so even at opposition, its elevation will not get that high. Even worse, this will not improve for many years to come. Mars. Well, Mars, lying in Virgo, rises around midnight at the start of the month, and about one hour earlier at the end. Its magnitude increases somewhat from plus 0.9 to plus 0.3, 
whilst the angular size increases from 6.9 to 8.8 arc seconds. So, given good seeing, it's possible to see markings on its salmon pink surface, such as the polar caps and Certis Major. So I think we can say that Mars's current apparition is really on its way. Mars is moving down across Virgo. At the beginning of the month, it's just below Purima, Gamma Virginis, whilst at its end, it's just four and a half degrees to the upper right of Spica, Alpha Virginis. Well, Mercury. Mercury passed behind the Sun, that's called Superior Conjunction, on December the 29th, so will not be visible, but then low in the west-southwest from about the mid to late part of January. It reaches its greatest elongation, that is, it's furthest away from the Sun in angle, and that's 18 degrees on January the 31st. It will then lie about 10 degrees above the horizon, 45 minutes after sunset, lying near a slender crescent moon. The magnitude will be then minus 0.6, and will have an angular size of 7 arc seconds. Well, finally, Venus. Venus will pass between the Earth and the Sun on the 11th of January, so it will only be seen either at the very beginning of the month, low in the southwestern sky after sunset, or at month's end, low above the eastern horizon before dawn. On New Year's Day, just 3% of its disk will be illuminated, but the very slim crescent will span almost one arc minute across. So what about the highlights this month? Well, I've sort of covered some of them. With Jupiter at opposition on January the 5th, it's the best month possible to observe Jupiter. The angular size remains at about 40 arc, 6 arc seconds throughout the month. So there's lots of details to see. And look, if you don't have a small telescope now, surely Father Christmas can bring you one so you can have a look. Probably the best year for many to come that we'll have to see Jupiter so high in the sky. The red spot. I saw it in a photograph image just the other night. It's actually become more prominent and can be easily seen now as a large feature in the South Equatorial Belt. And again, on the night sky page, I've just annotated a picture I took last year uh, showing you the various parts of the surface that you see, the equatorial belts and the zones. What about Venus? Well, as I said, we see it at the very beginning or at the end of the month. On January the 2nd, if it's clear, and I hope it will be after sunset, it will be visible about 45 minutes after sunset, and given a good low southwest horizon, you should be able to observe it just below a very thin crescent moon. And it's actually very rare that one could see two very thin crescents at the same time. Another thing to look for is the earth shine on the moon, the sort of the un lit side of the moon, but illuminated faintly by the light reflected by clouds on the Earth. It's not still a bad month to see Andromeda. And again, on the night sky page, I've given you details as to how to do that, and also to find M33. And that would be easiest at around the first, the beginning of the month, and the very end, because in fact we have two new moons this month. And obviously, the less light there is in the sky, the easier it is to see. Certainly M33, which is really pretty faint. 
on January the 14th. Jupiter is actually quite close, about six degrees, from a 98.4% full moon. That's pretty full, isn't it? Again, I, I show on the Night Sky page a picture I took of the two together when they came even closer in 2012. And I'm afraid to keep the size reasonable. I've actually pushed Jupiter a little bit closer to the moon than it really was. But anyway, that's something you can have a look on on the website. And coming to the end of the month, on Jan the 25th, before dawn, Saturn will be close to a waning roughly third quarter moon. So that's a nice thing to see. Just to the right of Saturn will be the moon. And finally, on January the 29th, before dawn, Venus, as I said, appears again, and this time with a thin crescent moon. Venus will be just four degrees above a very slender, waning crescent moon. So quite a lot to look for this month. Jupiter is no doubt the star. I do hope you get some really good clear nights. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for everyone in the Southern Hemisphere, here's John Field telling us about what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky in January. Kia ora and welcome to the first Jodcast of 2014. With our long daylight hours, the stargazing opportunities are much shorter, but this is offset by warmer nights. After sunset, the sky in the north is dominated by the constellations of Orion, Canis Major and Taurus, along with the planet Jupiter. Appearing as a bright white star, Jupiter is moving in a retrograde or backwards motion in front of the distant stars that form the constellation of Gemini, the twins. The brightest stars in Gemini are Castor and Pollux. These mark the heads of the twins and they can be found low in the northeast after sunset. Castor shining at magnitude 1.6 is the lower of the two stars and is a multiple star system. The two brightest companions can be split in medium-sized telescopes. Although with the title of Alpha, it is not in fact the brightest star in the constellation. Beta, commonly called Pollux, is the brighter, shining at magnitude 1.1. It is about 35 light years away from us, and although similar in mass to Sirius, it is a much brighter star, with a luminosity of 43 times that of our Sun, compared to Sirius's 26. This star has used up the hydrogen in its core and has now evolved into a giant star. Its colour has also changed. As the surface area expanded, its temperature dropped, giving it an orange hue compared to Sirius's white. In 2005, a planet with two and a half times the mass of Jupiter was discovered orbiting this star. Nearby to Eta, marking the foot closest to Taurus, is M35, an open star cluster that under good conditions can be seen with the unaided eye. Binoculars reveal more detail, and wide-field telescopes provide the best views. This cluster of over 500 stars is about 2,800 light years away and is about 100 million years old. Another of our summer's zodiac constellations can be found to the left of Gemini. Due north after sunset is Taurus the Bull. In Greek mythology, this constellation is seen as the embodiment of the god Zeus. The Bull's head appears as a distinct upside-down V of stars with its two horn tips stretching down towards our horizon. Aldebaran marks one of its eyes and is a red giant star about 65 light years away. The Pleiades mark the bull's back and can be found to the west of his head. A cluster of at least seven stars is visible to the eye. Once again, binoculars or a wide field telescope with low magnification is the best way to view this open cluster. I was recently camping with friends and showed this cluster through 10 by 50 binoculars and they were amazed to see how many stars there were and what a beautiful sight they make. Sitting above and between Taurus and Gemini is Orion the Hunter. This constellation has a large number of bright stars and many sights of the unaided eye, as well as binoculars and telescopes. 
This group of stars dominates our summer evening sky and us southern hemisphere observers hangs upside down is commonly known as the pot to many New Zealanders. Orion's brightest stars, Rigel, Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, along with the line of three stars forming its belt, are an easily seen pattern in our sky. Well placed for viewing is the Orion Nebula, which can be found in the middle of Orion's sword. To the unaided eye, this nebula appears as a fuzzy star. If you have binoculars or a small telescope, they will reveal a bat-shaped cloud. A 100mm or greater telescope reveal a number of stars in and around the nebula, including a tight group of four stars called the trapezium. The ultraviolet radiation from the brightest star in the trapezium is illuminating the surrounding cloud for a region of about 20 light years. The nebula is estimated to be about 1,300 light years away. Marking Orion's left foot is Rigel, the brightest star in Orion, although it is listed as Beta, the second brightest star in the constellation. This star is about 860 light years away from us, 18 times more massive and 130,000 times more luminous than our sun. The sun Māori along the east coast of Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Pleiades, the V of Taurus's head and the belt and sword of Orion form a great waka, the Māori word for canoe, known as Te Waka Tamarerati, the canoe of Tamarerati. In Māori mythology, Tamarerati sailed across the night sky in a canoe, placing the stars into the heavens. The wake of the canoe forms the pale glow of the Milky Way on which the waka sits. Following Orion are his two hunting companions, Canis Major the large and Canis Minor the small dog. The brightest star in our night sky, Sirius, marks the collar of Canis Major. For us, the dog is lying on his back with his feet up in the air. Sirius is 8.7 light years away and about 26 times brighter than our sun. Below Canis Major is Canis Minor, with Procyon, the eighth brightest star in the night sky, marking his tail. Almost overhead in the early evening sky is the second brightest star in our sky, Canopus. Measurements from the Hipparchus spacecraft put this star as being 310 light years away. This star has an estimated luminosity of 15,000 times that of our sun. Mars can be found near the star Spica in Virgo, rising after midnight, and is followed by Saturn, rising at 2am. Venus and Mercury are too close to the sun to be visible during January. We wish you clear skies during these summer nights and hope you take the opportunity to view some of the delights of our southern skies. Thanks for that, John. And now on to the feedback. And it's been quite a good episode for feedback. George has some post. Yes, I have a Christmas card from Ireland, which I was going to open on the air here. Hooray! I like this innovation, opening live on the air. Especially because Christmas cards are always exciting. So the Christmas card features a picture of uh, the night sky on the front. It says season oh, greeting wow. on the bottom. I can see Orion there. That looks like someone's taken a really, really uh, good photo. It's Orion and Taurus. Oh, yeah. If you look, you can see the Hyades and the Pleiades. Yeah, I see them. That's a really nice card. Let's see who it's from. So inside it says... Festive greetings to the entire Jodcast team, wishing you and yours the very best wishes for the season and a happy new year. Thanks for a great show. Bart, Bush Huts in Ireland. P.S. The photo is one I shot myself last winter. It's a very good photo. Well done. Thank you very much for that Christmas card. On the email, John Edge reminded us that we needed to remove the link to the now defunct forum from the main Jodcast page. Uh, which we have done. Thank you for that. And we are still looking at making an archive of the forum available so you can look at the old posts. So please bear with us on that. And Christine Brooks 
sent last month. Actually, this seems to have slipped through the net. A poem, and I really like this poem. She said, "Thanks for the podcast. I learned so much from it, and I love your enthusiasm." The mention of Beetlejuice—that's one of the stars pictured there in、uh, in Bart's card in Orion. Beetlejuice. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it, but that seems to be how everyone pronounces it. So she says, "The mention of Beetlejuice in the latest cast brought to mind the poem below that I wrote a few years ago." And she says, "The word Beetlejuice originally meant in Arabic the red hand of the hunter." And this poem has a number of verses, and it's great because it is poetic and simultaneously scientifically accurate, which is a very difficult combination to achieve. So I'm going to put this in the show notes, but I'm just going to read the first verse, and the poem is called "Birth." I look to the velvet sky, amid the winter night, Orion rising through the dark, Rigel blue and bright. I see Hunter's sword. Where misty birthing stars shine clear, and glowering Beetlejuice, dimly red, marks the dark months of the year. And so it goes on. It's really very, very impressive. So thank you very much for sending that in. On Facebook, Dave King says, "Happy Christmas, guys! Your podcast was my online find of 2013." On Twitter, Yoda the Oak pointed us to a picture of Venus in the night sky, looking very pretty and bright. And Chris Kirkland says, "Need a bit of intellectual stimulation following your after Christmas dinner snooze? Try the Jodcast." Thanks to all the people who have liked the page in the past month, and thanks for the retweets and follow Fridays. I particularly like the idea of the Jodcast waking people up after their sleepy post Christmas dinner period. Or waking them up after their New Year celebrations. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net, at Twitter at twitter.com/jogcast, on Facebook at facebook.com/jogcast, on YouTube at youtube.com/jogcast, on Flickr at flickr.com/groups/jogcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show, and it only remains to say thank you to Dr. Victor De Batista for the interview. The editors were Mark Perver, George Bendo, and Stuart Harper, and the producer was Mark Perver. So happy New Year to all our listeners, and until next time, jod on. on.